Welcome. You're listening to The Aligned Self, conversations in creating a conscious and abundant life. This is Daniel DeNovi. I'll be your guide and host. Let's see just where we can take this. Hello, friend, and welcome back to The Conversation. Here we are just before Christmas, just before the holidays really take off. And I have a question from one of our listeners about setting boundaries with my narcissistic parents. This is what the letter said. Hi, Daniel. Absolutely love your podcast. I always like to hear that. You have been my rock when I needed it. Appreciate everything you do. I know you have touched on setting boundaries specific to narcissistic parents in a previous podcast, and I can't remember which podcast episode it was. Frankly, I can't either. Because then she asked me, can you lead me to the episode? It's probably sitting somewhere in the docket a year earlier than today. Because I typically do those kinds of episodes just before people go back to their parents. But even if you go back to that previous episode, it's not going to be anything like this one. I think it's going to be different. Because frankly, I can't remember specifically addressing this in an episode So I'm going to specifically address your question here. Now, there's two phenomena that we'll talk about. One is the process of establishing boundaries and sticking to them. The other is the phenomena of age regression. You see, typically as adult children, even when you have children of your own, when you go back in the presence of your parents in the home that you probably grew up in, you tend to revert back to the same dynamic that was established when you were under their rule. Now, that phenomenon is a hypnotic phenomenon. It's a trance experience. It's very real. You really do revert back mentally and emotionally back to that teenage self or even younger. And so if you continue to listen, at the end of this episode, I'll give you a technique, a mental technique to reclaim that younger you and update them and bring them into the present. Now, for the sake of this podcast episode, for me to address narcissism is somewhat problematic because, one, it occurs on an entire spectrum. Behaviors range from being mildly irritating to being downright abusive. So as you proceed, as you consider the different suggestions that I offer in this episode, I want you to take an assessment of where your individual, where the individual that you deal with is on the spectrum. This will assist you in gauging your response. Obviously, the more abusive they are, the more unpredictable the response is, the less you want to engage with them because their response is more irrational and a conversation, more than likely, will not change their behavior one iota. And also, up until recently, it was typically considered a descriptor for a personality dynamic, not a generalized syndrome. But in the last 5-10 years, there's been a lot of research around narcissistic patterns, and there is an entire spectrum, some very severe, some very damaging, and others not so much. They're more irritating than not. And then also, just about everybody has some type of narcissistic or some, some behavior that could be labeled narcissistic in their repertoire. It typically arises, and this is important to know, that narcissistic behavior and those patterns in everybody 
arises from a damaged self-identity. We're a little insecure in some areas of our life. So we tend to develop a strategy, a dynamic in order to defend ourselves, to gain control in the situation. And so from this point forward, in this episode, I'm going to talk about that dynamic in terms of energy, power, and control. Now, the first thing I need to say and make you present to is that you are not going to change your parents. One of the fallacies I've seen over the years in different clients and even girlfriends talking about their exes who were, quote-unquote, narcissistic, there's this belief that you can communicate to them in a way where they're going to get it. They're going to get just how terrible they are. They're going to get just how destructive their behavior is. Well, they're not. Yet we need to address the hope that is there, that somehow, some way, fairness is going to rule. It's not. Life is not fair. People are the way they are, and we have to accept them how they are and not try and change them. It's not up to us to change them. This is a very spiritual perspective that we need to accept people how they are. And as I say this, understand that I have no idea what you're dealing with. There's a whole spectrum of behavior that's there. And so I can't speak specifically to certain behavior, only the dynamic that is there. But the good news is that if you don't try and change your parents, the only thing you do have purview over, the only thing you do have control over is you, your response. So let's talk about boundaries. Early on in my childhood, I shared a room with my younger brother and we established boundaries in the room. We drew a line right down the middle. This side is mine. That side is yours. Do not cross the line. Everything in this drawer is my drawer. You're not allowed to touch it. My brother's stamp collection was off limits to me. I couldn't even look at it without his permission. When you look at the landscape from an aerial view, there's no seeming boundary anywhere. There may be some natural boundaries, such as a river, a valley, a canyon, a mountain range. But it's not till you get down on the ground and you start to look at the boundaries that have been created to establish a city, a county, a community as separate from another. And so when we establish boundaries, we basically say, this is where I end and you begin, or where you end and I begin. We establish rules on how we will allow ourselves to be treated, rules on how we will allow ourselves to be talked to, and rules how we will allow people to touch us. Now, there's a couple things you need to understand about boundaries. One is that they are not for other people. It's for you to determine what you will allow and what you won't allow. When do you put your foot down? What is the line once crossed can't be crossed anymore? Boundaries are not necessarily for other people. Other people are not required to respect your boundaries. Pay attention to your rules. Now, I have a rule that you're allowed, anyone's allowed, to question my behavior. But I may take offense if you question my character, my self-identity. Because my behavior, I can change. That's liquid. That's fluid. It, it may just be a response of my perspective at the moment. But if you question the content of my character, you're questioning my self-identity. You're questioning who I am as a person. 
And at this stage of the game, it's a very considered position. So if you're a loved one, if you're a friend, and you attack my character, the content of my self-identity, I may take offense. More than likely, I'll take an offense. Because one of the rules that I have for friendship is that I can be safe in your presence. Because we are friends, you can be, I can be vulnerable. And if that safety is not there, then frankly, I don't think we can be friends. That's my second boundary attached to that first rule. Now, in a couple minutes, I'll talk about a few more boundaries that you could establish, that you could put in place. But before we do that, I need to address an elephant in the room that a lot of people don't even see or don't consider. And that is if you haven't really established boundaries in the past. Just saying you have a boundary doesn't necessarily make it possible for you to put it in place. There's going to be some fear. There's going to be some trepidation. Because frankly, you're going to be putting up the hand, say none of that, no more. And they may not agree. They may resist. They may even reject you. They may not want to play your game. But that's their choice. They're not required to pay attention to your boundaries. They're not required to play the game the way you want it to be played. And so their response is their response. But in the lack of boundaries, they don't know where the rules are. They don't know when to stop. And if they haven't been put there in the past, they may transgress that boundary when it's first put in place. They're going to question it. They're going to call your bluff. They're going to test you to see how firm you are in your resolve to honor your boundary. And this is where you take a stand. And that reminds me of a quote that I simply love. You either stand for something or you will fall for anything. When you make a stand, you're drawing a line in the dirt saying, do not cross that. This is where you end and I begin. This is my domain. You do not have any control over here. But I'll state this again just because I want you to be in the reality of it. You're going to establish a boundary. You're going to say, here's the line. They're going to question it. You're going to have fear in establishing that boundary, and you're going to have fear and trepidation in making that stand. That's okay. Just expect it and move through it. Don't stop, because this is how we train people how to treat us. You see, we are always training people how to treat us, what we will allow and what we won't allow. Kids are masters at this constantly testing the boundaries, constantly testing what the rules are to see where you will give, where you will acquiesce. Will you hold the line? And if you have any experience as a parent, you know that it can be fatiguing to continually say again, the rule is the rule. Now with kids, it's important to know that sometimes we can acquiesce or move the line around a little bit because we're more interested in the spirit of the law, spirit of the rule, rather than the rule itself. But the good news is that it is seldom adversarial in stating your boundaries or honoring your boundaries. You just need to be persistent and consistent. Now, because every situation is a little bit different, there's different dynamics going on, I can't necessarily across the board give you a set of boundaries because they're going to be personalized to you. You know, what works for you, what doesn't work for you, because each individual is a little bit different. But I can give you some general guidelines on when to establish a boundary. 
Now, I did decide to offer you a list of sample boundaries. You can download that at yesdaniel.com forward slash 206. And for your convenience, the link will also be in the show notes. One rule is that you are not required to explain yourself to anyone. You don't have to give a reason. You don't have to explain why you're making a decision, why you're doing the things you're doing, why you've made the choices that you've made for your life. You don't owe anybody an explanation. Maybe your partner, if you have a joint agreement or a joint bank account and you're spending money without their knowledge, you see, if it's a decision that impacts another person, then you owe it to them to explain your rationale. But if the decision is involving yourself, if the decision or action involves just you, just your life, then you're not required to explain yourself to anyone. And just to be clear, even in a committed relationship, you're not required to provide an explanation. But that decision may cost you the relationship. So you need to pick your battles. And in those terms, no is a complete sentence. So let me expand on this. Sometimes we are invited to go to a party to come, you know, visit someone. And you can say, no, that doesn't work for me. You don't owe an explanation why it doesn't work for you. You can just say, no, it doesn't work for me. Maybe another time. And they might be persistent. Oh, come on, come on. What do you have going on? Can't be that important to miss this party. I'm sorry, I just can't make it. And that's enough. Doesn't work for me. No, thank you. I appreciate the invite. Maybe another time. That's if you want to go another time. If someone's asking you to hang out and you don't really want to hang out with them, just say, that's not my scene. Or, I don't really want to go out with you. Don't give some lame excuse on why you can't do it. Just say no. And I admit that can be really uncomfortable at first because you risk the the goodwill of that other person. They might not like you, but they might take offense. But this is where you need to look at the flip side of it. If you're agreeable, if you say yes, if you give some kind of explanation or say, maybe we'll be there, when you know that you really won't be there, what you're doing is you're being manipulative. You're playing the other person. You're not being honest and truthful with them, where they can honestly and truthfully respond to you. You see, the more honest you can be, the more direct you can be with your response, you give the other person the opportunity to respond in kind, to respond to your truth. So where do you put the no in place? This is where you review the past and look at those situations where you have been agreeable, not to ruffle the feathers, not to rock the boat, but you just kind of agree to circumstances, invitations when you really didn't want to and later regretted it. Regret is a big indicator that you have a poor boundary. Another place to say no or make a stand is when you've made a decision or you've been asked to perform some behavior or engage in some activity that compromises your values. But sometimes these boundaries are not just for other people, they're for you to use on yourself. Now, when I was younger, I didn't realize it, but I had a fragile self-image as far as being attractive to the opposite sex. And so I might have been overly flirtatious, overly inviting. I had loose boundaries about what was permissible, what was acceptable, even though I might have been in a relationship with somebody else. 
Because if I said I'm in a relationship, I have a girlfriend, that meant that this dynamic, this flirtatious uh, dance would go away, more than likely. But that wasn't always the case. But that's a time of my life that I'm not particularly proud of, but I didn't even know I was playing that game when I was in the midst of it, it was only in reflection. So today I have a rule that I do not engage in any conversation with a woman that my wife could not be a witness to, could not be a part of. I do not meet a woman for dinner. I do not meet a woman for drinks unless my wife can come. I do not engage in communication or texting that my wife could not be a witness to, not have access to. My wife has access to my phone. She knows my codes. She knows my passwords. See, that's a rule that I've established for myself to take temptation off the table. And frankly, I no longer need that validation anymore. Externally, I'm internally validated now. So there's probably a hundred different areas of life where you can establish boundaries of behavior for yourself. You make a stand for yourself in order to establish who you are in relationship to the circumstances in your life. That's the real purpose of boundaries. Self-identity, establishing your self-identity where you begin and the other person ends. And standing by your boundaries is the ultimate form of self-respect. So let's talk a little bit more about the whole narcissistic parent dynamic. How can you gain some power in this situation? One is you need to realize that it's not about you. Yes, you may be impacted, but it's not about you. The dynamic is not necessarily about you. You're a part of the interchange. But where it comes from, where this these narcissistic patterns come from, is from a deep insecurity in their self-identity, their self-concept. How capable am I? How effective am I? And this insecurity typically comes from or arises from a trauma in the childhood. Some trauma that they were exposed to when they were younger and they made a decision to establish a certain behavior, a certain response to the world in order to maintain control, to maintain a sense of self. People that are deeply insecure tend to seek validation outside themselves from the responses of other people. They want the adoration, the acceptance, the likability of other people. Yet in the end, they don't really care about you. They don't really care about your needs and wants. They want to satisfy their own needs and wants because they've never been satisfied in the past. They don't know how to satisfy their own wants and needs. When they look in the mirror, they see someone less than. And so they need to control others. They need to create a drama in order to feel in control in the situation that they have their hands on the wheel. I've always liked the term control drama to explain this. It's a way to gain energy. If you begin to think about every exchange as an exchange of energy, you begin to understand this in a whole new way. You see, some people's energy is self-generated. They expand possibility. They give energy to a situation. When they walk in, they give energy to everyone. They, people like having them around. But in that dynamic, they don't require the attention of other people. They just naturally attract it. Contrast that to the narcissistic pattern, and that person seeks attention in order to feel fulfilled, to feel acknowledged. They need the attention. And so typically, this person is very charming, dynamic, engaging in public, yet when you get home, 
It's a completely different animal. He, she's a completely different animal. Because you know who they are. You know what's up. They don't have to pretend with you. They need to control you. Yet, if you were to tell anybody out in the real world how they are in private, nobody would believe you. They'd be aghast. Are you crazy? They would blame you. They would say, the problem is you. It's not them. They're great. And that's because they've done such a good job of putting up the mask to extract energy from the crowd, energy from their friends. Because more often than not, that vitality is not inner-generated. They can barely look themselves in the mirror. In the recesses of their mind, they are hypercritical of themselves. And I say that not for you to feel sorry for them, just to understand what's going on underneath the surface. So to make sure that I haven't gone too far off the tracks here, I want to bring back the idea that it's all about a competition for energy, attention. How do I control the dynamic? And the way a controlling parent would control you is to demean you, put you down, criticize. In order to place themselves in a position of power and a position of authority, I have dominion over you, what I say goes. And unfortunately, often underneath it is actually a desire for you to do good, a desire to be proud of you. Yet, they're operating from an old paradigm, a pattern that was handed to them. That's how they were talked to, more than likely. And how they were handled is if I shame you into behavior, then I can control you. I can guide your life. I can get you to do what I want you to do. And in the end, I don't feel like I'm a poor parent, like I did my job. You could call this power dynamic the aggressor, the dominator. Another way this shows up is they become an interrogator. Like they're constantly asking you questions, putting you on the defensive like you have to answer them. This is why establishing that no is a good enough answer for yourself. You don't need to provide any explanation other than the fact that you made a decision. That's what I decided. (laughs) End of story. I had a good friend that always dreaded going back to his dad in talking about school and talking about his career plans because his father did not approve. His father wanted him to do something completely different. Yet, it didn't appeal to my friend at all. And he left every exchange with his father feeling demeaned. And he left every exchange with his father feeling demeaned, like he couldn't make a decision for himself. So one time I told him, the next time you have a conversation with your dad, ask your dad, would you like me to be unhappy or happy in my life? Would you like me to have a life of satisfaction or a life of misery? That career path, I find miserable. What I'm doing now makes me happy. I may not make as much money, but I know I'll be happy. And I know you want me to be a man. Now, if I continue to do what you want me to do, do as you say, I'm just your kid, just bigger. Don't you think I need to make my own mistakes to live my own life? Isn't that what you really want for me? You don't have to be happy for my choice, but I want you to be happy that I'm happy. In that particular circumstance, it ended well. His father really did want him to be happy, even though he grumbled and mumbled about him not making the choice that was best for him, from Dad's point of view. But my friend established a boundary, that it was his life, his domain, and his father was no longer in control of the man. Another control dynamic is the poor me. And this is people that like to create a lot of drama. 
and talk about how they are at the effect of circumstances, the effect of life, and they complain. It's a lot of complaining, and they want your ear. This is the energy vampire. They suck your energy. The last control dynamic is the person that is aloof or reticent. They don't share. They're shy in order to pull attention towards them. What's wrong? What's going on with you? What are you feeling? What are you talking about? They want people to approach them. They want people to give them their attention and energy because it makes them feel validated and makes them feel important. Now, more than likely, the person you have to deal with as a narcissistic parent is the aggressor or the interrogator. And how they get energy is putting you on the defensive, putting you in the responsive mode where you're responding to them. And so the strategy in responding to this, I call playing catch with the three-year-old. Now, I don't know if you've ever played catch with a three-year-old, but they're not very coordinated. It's very difficult for them to catch the ball, and they're not very good at throwing it to you. When they throw it, it's typically short, off to the side, the left or right, anywhere but to you. And so if you want to continue playing catch with it, you have to run after the ball and then come back to them and toss it to them gently. And chances are it will hit them in the chest, they'll not catch it, and then they have to bend over and pick it back up. And then they'll throw it wildly again somewhere else. And then you run and go get it, and then come back and toss it back to them. And this will go on indefinitely as long as you're willing to run after the ball. And then not only run after the ball, but then throw it back to them. You see, if you take the stance of the three-year-old, then you simply don't catch it and you don't throw it back. So how do you put this into action on the court, on the mat, with your parents in real time? So like I said earlier, there are predictable patterns, predictable conversations that you can have with your parents because they've happened before, they'll probably happen again. And so since you know it's sourced from their desire to have a sense of control, to get attention, to gain energy because they feel insecure, there's something insufficient about them. And this is where we need to look at our parents as just flawed people. And since you know that it's going to happen, it's predictable. When it happens, you can take the stance that this is not about you. It's about them. And this is where you say inside, say it inside your head, because saying it out loud might cause a little rift. But you say, isn't that fascinating? Isn't that interesting? And you're watching it now as an observer. You're no longer a participant. You're no longer the three-year-old playing catch. You drop the ball. And so if they say something that's derogatory, demeaning, or criticizing, you can just look at them blankly. Let a pregnant pause hang in the air. Don't respond. And after about four seconds of the pause, four seconds is a long time. There was just four seconds. And you respond, I don't understand. And they might respond, what do you mean you don't understand? You say, I don't understand. I would assume if you talk to me, it would be something loving. And that doesn't sound very loving to me. And I'm just curious what your motivation is. What are you trying to accomplish? Because frankly, if it's not a loving conversation, I don't want to participate. We can talk about anything else. When we create a pause in the conversation, after a demeaning statement, after a derogatory remark, it makes things uncomfortable. 
The expectation is that you're going to respond. And if you don't respond, then it's up to the other person to fill the space. And then after that pregnant pause, you say, I don't understand. They either have to say it again, say it a different way, or ask you what you don't understand. And then when you respond with a pause again and state again, I don't understand. This is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for you. But if you can stand there internally amused at the situation, intrigued, it probably isn't helpful to smirk at this point, but you can be smiling on the inside because you know that you've removed yourself from the dynamic. You're now watching it. Then when we say, I would expect your communication to be loving in nature, it doesn't sound very loving to me. I was just curious what your motivation is. What are you trying to accomplish? This makes them question or justify their rationale in making the statement or asking what they asked. But instead of waiting for them to justify it, you say, if it's not loving, I'd rather not participate. I can talk about anything else. And so in saying that, you let them off the hook. They don't have to justify it. There's nothing to get angry about. And this is where you really need to, I guess, assess what your relationship is with this parent, with this person. If your relationship with them is very contentious, over the top, you know that they're going to blow a gasket, then rather than have that exchange, you pause and look at them and say, I'm sorry, but I'm not having this conversation. I don't wish to talk about this. I see nothing constructive coming out of this. In fact, I would rather leave right now than continue this conversation. And again, I have no idea what the level of abuse is, what the level of response is, what the intensity of the conversation typically is. But you have to remember that we are always training people how to treat us based on what we will tolerate, what we will allow. There's nothing that says that you have to attend family functions. You don't have to put yourself in situations that are uncomfortable, demeaning, or demoralizing. You always have the power to extract yourself from the conversation, sometimes even if you go in the other room. You don't necessarily have to leave the house, but you can say, I'm going to the other room. Again, you're the three-year-old that removes yourself from playing catch. You're not throwing it back. Now, depending on the dynamic in the household, if this person is aggressive, as if they're an authority, they don't like their authority questioned, then rather than do it in front of other people, which they now find embarrassing, you pause after they say whatever they say and ask, may I speak with you in private? May we go in the kitchen or may we go in the den or outside and continue this? And then they ask why, say, I don't want to be disrespectful, so I'd like to talk to you in private. Now, this does two things. One, you're honoring their authority. Even though you may not like it, if you honor it, pay it respect, then they have nothing to resist, nothing to push against. And two, by changing the venue, it's a pattern interrupt. You interrupt their state, and in the process, you typically defuse or at least deescalate the intensity of whatever is going on. A good example of this is if you've ever had an interesting or intense conversation with somebody that has been going on for a a while, 
and either one of you or both of you need to go to the restroom, once you come back, it's almost hard to remember, what were we talking about? What what was the point I was trying to make? And so this pattern interrupt is really powerful. And when you get them alone, this is where you can earnestly say, I really don't care to have this conversation. I don't want to participate in this conversation. I don't see the value in it. It's not constructive. And frankly, dad, mom, I'm an adult woman. I'm an adult man. It's no longer acceptable to talk to me that way. And I feel so strongly about it. I'd rather leave than continue this conversation. One important thing here is if you threaten to leave, if you say, if this continues, I'm going to remove myself, then you need to be prepared to make good on your statement. And it's best if you do that with the least amount of emotion possible. In fact, this whole process works the best if you do not match intensity. Remain as calm as possible. And if you do match intensity, don't match the velocity of it. Like, don't go over the top. But ideally, you want to create a vacuum on your side of the equation, meaning that you're not going to respond to them in the predictable manner. They don't get the energy from you. Now, I have to admit, I'm hallucinating a little bit about the dynamic that's going on in the household that you're moving into, and it's going to vary from person to person. And there's a number of different ways to interrupt the pattern of abuse. Sometimes when you someone says something derogatory, there's an insult. You just kind of cock your head sideways and smile and say, you're funny. One time I had someone spew verbal garbage my way, And I had this dumbfounded look on my face. I looked at them, kind of stunned. And I looked behind me. I looked all around me. And then I turned back and faced them and said, were you talking to me? Both of these last two examples is an attempt to insert a little humor in the response and not provide the predictable response, the predictable defense. Now, you might be asking... How do I put this into practice once I'm in it? Because typically when I'm in it, I'm defensive, I respond, it's almost automatic. So you want to practice ahead of time. Practice without pressure. So you get a friend of yours, you get your spouse to role play with you. And because this is not the first time this has happened, it's happened before, there's a predictable pattern of behavior, a predictable conversation that will occur. And so you instruct your partner to feed you the information, feed you the verbiage that would typically go on. But when they do that, you want them to take on a voice that is atypical from your parent. Have them say it with an accent. Have them say it in Mickey Mouse's voice or some other character, some other cartoon character. Have them say as close as possible the exact verbiage that you would typically hear, but have them say it in a way that is over the top, absurd, ostentatious, not with anger, but with comedy. And when they do, your response is to look at them and in your head, say the words, how interesting, how fascinating, while you pause. And then say the words, I don't understand. And then practice this again and again. And each time have a different response. And then you be over the top. And you could even laugh in response to a derogatory response. (laughs) You silly goose. Or something to that effect. Practicing this 
half a dozen times, 10 times, 12 times, again and again, until you have a feeling that the energy has shifted from that dynamic where they can say the words, or you can imagine you being in that situation, them saying the words, and you don't have the typical response come up in your body. The spell has been broken. The response isn't the same. It's not predictable. Another way to interrupt this pattern is imagine your parent talking to you the way they typically talk to you, but this time imagine them only being about 12 inches tall and speaking with a little squeaky voice. You see, we're putting a different frame around the entire context of this dynamic, and we're also creating a pattern interrupt in your mind to where you don't run the typical pattern in response to what they're saying. And again, we can't control them. We can't control their response. The only thing that you have control over is your response. So to sum this up, your power lies in your ability to distance yourself from the emotional impact of the interchange with a quote-unquote narcissistic parent or a parent with narcissistic tendencies or patterns. Now, one thing to realize that has come out of the recent research on narcissism People that have narcissistic tendencies rarely change. They don't like to reflect on themselves because they have a poor self-image. And so to do that, they actually feel too vulnerable to actually ask for help or to seek a change in their behavior. They tend to justify it. They tend to explain it away as it's not me, it's you. And so we need to revisit what I said earlier. If you expect fairness in this interchange, it may not and more than likely will never happen. And so even though you're setting boundaries, it's not up to them to respect it. You can demand or you can wish and expect them to respect it. But if they don't, then you need to have a backup plan, which is typically walking away or limiting your interaction with them altogether. For some people, this seems like a really hard decision, especially when it involves family, because there's this idea that blood is thicker than water. And that if you're tied to someone through DNA, you owe them something. But frankly, this is something that you really need to hash out for yourself. Just where do your loyalties lie? If you were to ask me, those people that share your DNA are just people. They don't necessarily have your best interests at heart. And their actions and their behavior will demonstrate that. And so if you find yourself at this choice point... You are choosing the sovereignty of your soul, the integrity of your psyche and your self-concept, your self-identity. And I feel it is the ultimate expression of self-respect when you set boundaries and stand by them. And if you're really honest with yourself, if you've established boundaries, if you've talked about them, stated them, and the other person you are in relationship with is unwilling to respect, honor, or even talk about your boundaries or negotiate, around those, come to some kind of compromise, some win-win solution. If they're not willing to do that, then frankly, I think they should leave. I admit that is the greatest fear that people have in establishing and setting boundaries. But if you think about it, if you think about it, if those people are unwilling to respect and honor your boundaries, honor and respect you, your wishes, And if you continue to make a firm stand and they end up leaving, they end up being upset, it's not a loss at all. 
but this is my opinion. My opinion is that I want someone to be with me, be connected with me willingly, in spite of the fact that I have established and set certain boundaries, certain boundaries of acceptable behavior for me to be in relationship with me. Nothing in my estimation is more attractive than a person that chooses to be in your presence and respects and honors the person that you are, the person that you've chosen to be. Now, on the front end of this episode, I did say that I would address that issue, that phenomenon of age regression. Well, I didn't expect this to go this long. So I'm going to produce a bonus episode where I will address that age regression issue and give you an exercise to update that aspect of your persona and bring it into the present. So with that said, until next time, this is your friend and host, Daniel DeNovi, urging you to follow your bliss. Oh, by the way, I just want to remind you that I did create that list of sample boundaries, and that's at yesdaniel.com forward slash 206. So where was I? This is Daniel DeNovi urging you to follow your bliss. Live your life from inner signals. Be inner directed as you engage in the epic adventure. (laughs) 